You are one impressive group of people. Way to go. So great to see you. People who understand that they live in Michigan and that it snows here. That have cars that can drive in it or are good enough to drive any car in it. Whoever you are in that category, thanks for being here. Just, I want to welcome not just of those, those of you here in Plymouth where we broadcast our services from, but all of our campuses. Look at Northridge, Grosseal, Celine, Brighton. So glad that you're connected as well. Thank you everyone who's at one of our campus environments for getting out and clearing off your driveways and clearing off your cars and taking a risk with crazy drivers to get here and we're thankful that you did it. If you're, if you're watching online, we're glad you're here too. In fact, I, I have been praying for this weekend and we knew this big blizzard was going to hit and all this different stuff. Who knew when it's 22 degrees, it's also going to rain and sleet on top of all the snow. Who knew? But that's, you know, Michigan. And and so we're probably going to have more watching online this weekend than in our campus settings. We want people to be safe. We're glad that, uh, you know, you're engaging in however you are. But a special word to those of you who are in the southern regions of America or in some sunny place around the world. You just need to know, we don't believe that God called you to be in those environments. We believe you're more like Jonah and you're running from God and claiming to be living for him. That's kind of where we're at. Uh, because God loves us too. And so, but here's, here's my view. I have a lot of friends who are in ministry and they, they really are in beautiful places in this world. And, uh, and they say God, God called them there. They have integrity. I believe that's true. But here's my belief. For eternity, I'm going to be in a better place in heaven than you because of where I had to do ministry. That's it's kind of my view of the world. It's not good theology. It's nowhere in the Bible, but it gets me up in the morning. So that's kind of how we do it. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, however you're engaging this service, thanks. And I, I have to tell you, to kick this weekend off, I, I, I have to confess, I'm a very different person today than I've been in the past. I, I really am. Uh, the reality is that I've gone through some, what's the best way to say it, weird stages of life. And you could tell that they were weird stages by my hairstyles, by my dress, by my musical preferences. And just to prove it to you, I, I, I brought some pictures that will tell the story. Um, for example, this first picture. I, this was um, young Brad. Before I knew Jesus, I had rejected God because of religion at this time. And and um, kind of looking the part of the, the world that I was in at the time, the generation I was in. And every time I look at this picture, not only do I go, was that really me? I didn't know I was that awesome looking. Uh, but but I, I look at my mom and, and I think, poor mom. <laughs> you know, by the way, I know I look eight feet tall here, but my mom's only three foot two. So that's kind of why I, I look tall there. But at this particular stage of life, you, you, I had certain musical preferences, and it kind of goes along with the look. And can, can you guess what they were? I, I won't make you guess. I'll, I'll tell you. Many of you won't even know what these are because, you know, I'm 90 years old. But here, at this time in my life, I was listening to Deep Purple, Machine Head, you know. 
Uh, I actually saw them in uh, Olympia Stadium. If the old uh, Olympia Stadium here in Michigan, it was like you were sitting on a wall <laughs> looking down at these things, and it was, it was rock and roll at its best. I listened to Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon back then, which is, you didn't even have to be high to get high listening to that music. It was like just crazy, I, and I, I still love it to this day. Um, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. And I, he recently died, but if you've never listened to Ziggy Stardust, it's bizarre tune, man. And uh, it fit my world in that day. And finally, really kind of like my theme song, theme group, first band I ever saw in concert ever was Steppenwolf and Born to be Wild. That was my kind of music, right? And, and it, it fits, right? It goes along with that kind of look. And uh, even though I had uh, David Cassidy hair, I didn't like David Cassidy music kind of a thing. And then the second pick will show that it, this is an entirely different stage of life. I, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of a weird stage, right? It's like, woo! Uh, so I had come to faith in Jesus. He had so transformed my life that I turned everything upside down and decided I wanted to spend my life helping people to meet Jesus, to wake the world up to Jesus. And at this particular moment in life, I was in seminary. Uh, seminary is the place where, you know, I was trying to learn, uh, get the tools to understand how to understand the Bible and get into it and those kind of things. And just so you know, this was the cliche look for someone in seminary in my day. I, you didn't love Jesus and you weren't smart if you didn't look as stupid as I look in this picture, right? I, it's a three-piece suit and all that deal. But so I, I was just fitting into the, the, to the standard of the community. This is kind of what we looked at. And my music had changed dramatically, of course, I, I, in this stage of my life. We didn't have a worship movement like we're so privileged to have now. We didn't have Passion or Hillsong or Bethel music. We didn't have all that. And, but I, I kind of had rejected the religion of my past, and so the hymns weren't really in it for me. And and uh, even though I've embraced them as I've gotten older. So I was looking for some contemporary, relationally engaged music. And so at the time, I was listening to Second Chapter of Acts. If you've ever heard them, they were awesome. And, and my favorite all-time, uh, still listen to him a lot. He died when he was 28, but changed the world and scope of Christian music. His name was Keith Green. He was phenomenal. And so I, that's who I was listening to then. But a different stage of life. And just so you know, it kind of, it fit the standard of the community that I was now associated with. And then this third pick um, that I can show you, this is young Brad and young Roxanne just before we got married, uh, some 39 years ago it'll be this year. And so, kind of a, I'm just telling you, I am built. Ah, it's crazy. But... Yeah, that's, that's just before we got married. So the music in my life, I, I, whether you'll believe it or not, had changed dramatically again. And here we are, we're in love and all this different stuff. And all the music I was listening to at this time were love songs, right? And this is going to blow your brains. It's like, like, how deep is your love by the <laughs> Bee Gees? Uh, love... <laughs> Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille. I'm embarrassed to say it. And by the way, it didn't work for them. Uh, it didn't keep them together or anything, but it did, Roxanne and I. And, and then Roxanne and I would listen to Bread and their love songs like If, you know, and Diary, great music from the past. And if you're a thinking person, you're out there going, why was a guy who listened to Deep Purple 
listening to Captain and to Neil. You know, I mean, seriously. And I'm going to tell you why. I was in love, you know, and the, the, the stage of my life had changed, and so the standards of my life had changed, and okay, that's, that's wrong. Roxanne made me listen to that crap. That's kind of why I listened to it, but you can see the, the stages of life and how they, they change depending on what you're experiencing and who you're experiencing it with. And even more impacting to my life than hair and dress and musical preferences, I've gone through some very drastic stages in what I valued, in the morals that I embraced or didn't embrace. I've gone through some unbelievable stages as it relates to how I lived my life and what I was living my life for. And the, to boil it right down to what's important for you to understand, and I really do believe this is vital. More often than not, I was a predictable product of my context. I mean, you look into the seminary I attended, and I, I, I was a predictable product. This is what people like me at that place in that community doing that thing in life, studying the Bible, etc., looked like. I, I just became a part of my context. It was predictable. I was a predictable product of my context as that kid who was standing next to his mom there, and the same thing as a young guy in love. You know, I was predictable. I, I was the, the, the accepted standards of my close circle of friends in those days became my standards for life. It's just the way it was. And you need to know, and this is really important, the same is true for all of us. And get this, please. The fact is that every generation, community, and individual throughout history has had their own standards. They've had their own music and literature and concerns. They've had their own fashion trends and behavior, and they've kind of adopted it together. But here's what's extremely unfortunate. Most individuals, and this is most of us if we're honest, don't intentionally choose our standards. They just ultimately accept and adopt the standards of their generation or their community. That's what I did as a teenager. I thought I was a, a revolutionary. I was making a statement. I was marching to my own drumbeat. I was setting my own pace. And the truth is absolutely the opposite. I was becoming the predictable consequence of the community and culture I was in. Nothing intentional or revolutionary about it. I was just a product of the standards around me. And this is what people do. They, they get carried along in the current of, their, of the standards of their, their community and culture or the lack of standards of their community and culture, and that's what they become like. And they think they're unique, but they're not at all. It's predictable. It's obvious. And this even happens in settings like this. In spiritual context, so-called, and churches. People can, can start becoming like the standard of that community, but in no way are they embracing the realities of the Christ who's behind that community. They're just kind of adopting the standards of the community. It's some kind of external deal. They start looking the part and talking the part and singing the part and serving the part, but 
but their lives aren't being transformed at all. And when this happens, they start getting discouraged and thinking that God's not real and thinking that God's promises aren't true. And they start giving up on that when they never even one time experience the reality of it. Because they're just unintentionally getting swept away in the standards of a community instead of intentionally choosing a standard that can transform their life. And here's why all of this is a big deal before I dive into the biblical relevance of this. Our standards determine how we live. It determined in each stage of my life how I live, that my standards did. And it determines whether we live well or not well. We live wisely or foolishly. We, we live for things that matter for eternity or things that only matter for the moment. We live for things that we'll be one day proud of or will one day significantly regret. And these days, just know, we call it political or cultural correctness. That's what we call adopting the standards of our world without intentionally choosing it. If we want to get along in, in our particular world, if we want to be accepted in our particular culture, then, then what it tells us is that, that we have to adopt its standard, that we have to embrace its standard, and then we'll be accepted, and then we'll be liked, and then we can be successful, and then we'll be embraced, but if we don't, we'll be rejected. Today, as an example, tolerance is the primary value of our world. You know, tolerance, and, and here's why. We live in a world that doesn't believe there's an absolute morality, doesn't believe there's an absolute truth, an absolute right or wrong, and, and so their great value is that we're supposed to accept and tolerate everyone's values as different as they might be without judgment. We're to tolerate, we're to live and let live, and if you don't, tolerate everyone, they won't tolerate you. But I thought toleration was the value. No, no, no. See, they'll try and destroy you and obliterate you and ruin you. And you see it all over our world today in the name of toleration. So much for toleration. Here's the truth. They only value toleration when it supports their view and their lack of standards, not when it stands for something else. Come on. I mean, that's the world we live in right now, right? And as I've already said, for much of my early life, I was a product of my context. I mean, the standards of my community and culture became my standards, and how I lived because of that wasn't determined by me. Think about this. How I live was being determined by others. That's foolish, and that's what I was. I was a fool. My life didn't change for the positive. My life didn't come, become something that I cherish instead of regret until I started intentionally choosing my own standard. This is when life changes. And so as we continue in this series that we're calling Unseen, here's what we need to know. Jesus calls us to change our standard intentionally. Jesus calls us to change our standard from the seen, you know, the common standards of our culture, to the unseen, the uncommon standards of God. And when we genuinely follow Jesus... Our standard, and thus how we live, 
changes. This is a big deal. Here's the truth that I want you to see this weekend. When we have Jesus' unseen view, when we honestly go from just swimming in the current of the seen and accepted values of the day and standards of the day to intentionally choosing the unseen values and view of Jesus, we're going to see and value God's word as absolute truth. I mean, that's what we're going to do. That's what happens when we really choose Jesus' view, we're going to value and embrace God's word, what we call the Bible today, as absolute truth. That will become our standard. Now, this is really important for me to say. At this point in time, I'm, I'm, I'm not giving you reasons to accept the Bible as God's absolute truth, as his word. Hopefully in this talk, I'll give you some ideas about that. But right now, I'm just making a statement. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to live for Jesus, if you're going to become one of his followers, you, you need to embrace what he embraced, the truth that's absolute, that God has revealed. And if you don't embrace God's word as absolute truth, it simply means that you're not following Jesus. And this is important because many of us claim to follow Jesus, but we in no way embrace the Bible as God's absolute truth. And so what we have to do is understand that when we don't experience the promises of God, it's not because God's promises aren't true and can't be experienced. It's because we're trying to experience God's promises by living our own truth, not his. And it doesn't work that way. By adopting the standards of our culture or our community, even here, instead of intentionally choosing God's word as our standard. And let me just show you if... If you're going to follow Jesus, why you have to believe God's word is absolute truth, make it your standard. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 8. The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. Each of those phrases are simple declarations that what we now hold in our hands called the Bible, the, the scriptures, that which God has spoken, the law of the Lord, in biblical terms is considered perfect and trustworthy and right. It's absolute. This isn't up for grabs. It's not debatable. And in fact, the minute I start debating it, the, the minute I start going, yeah, some of it's pretty good, but there's some stuff I don't like. You know, this works in my culture here in the 21st century, but this doesn't work in my culture. This works with my view of the world, but this doesn't work. The minute I start adding to or subtracting from what has unfolded as God's word, it is no longer perfect. It is reflecting my imperfection when I mess with it. It is no longer trustworthy. It's now reflecting my untrustworthiness. I'm, I'm becoming the God who decides what is truth. And trust me, you don't want to be following that. And the minute I start messing with it, it's no longer right. It is now wrong. Because I'm no standard. And yet that's what the world's doing. They're trying to figure it out. Thomas Jefferson, one of the great founders of America, let's give him that, didn't buy into the reality of the God of the Bible. And so he didn't believe any of the supernatural stuff. So you know what he did? He wrote his own Bible. 
He left out all the supernatural stuff and says, here, take that. And you know what that was? Untrustworthy. You know what that was? Wrong. You know what that was? Imperfect. Because it was what a man did and not what God did. If you're really going to have Jesus' view, you have to stop playing games with this and you either have to embrace it as absolute truth or reject it. And stop kidding yourself. Because here's the fact. Many of us claim to be following Jesus, but we're making up our own path. Which means what we're doing is we're making up our own Jesus. And so at the very least, let's just be honest with ourselves. I either accept Jesus and his absolute truth or I reject Jesus and his absolute truth. You can't do middle ground. And this will explain why you are or aren't experiencing his promises. This is a big deal because as a pastor and as a Christian, I'm telling you, the biggest problem in the world of Christianity today is People are claiming Jesus but not claiming his truth and you can't do that. If you don't claim his truth, you're rejecting Jesus and if you claim Jesus, you have to accept his truth. Do you see this? This is a big deal. Look at John 17, 17. This is what Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Jesus is talking to God the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, word sanctify. Make them holy, make them right. And do it by your truth. Your word is truth. So what do I do when I, when I don't accept his absolute truth? I, I make it impossible for him to make me holy, to make me right. And that's exactly what's going on in churches and Christian lives all over the world. Nothing's happening because they're living by their own made-up truth instead of God's truth. Do you see it? How about you? 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, that endures forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. This is the word that we now have in what we call the Bible. The undeniable reality is that the Bible claims that Jesus believed in absolute truth. The undeniable reality is that the Bible claims that God, Jesus, believes in absolute truth. And it's not at all timid about it. It doesn't play hide and seek around it. So at the very least, you can genuinely accept the Bible and truly follow Jesus. Or you can reject the Bible and not follow Jesus, but you can't take middle ground there. And those of us who have truly decided to follow Jesus and to live by faith for the unseen rather than the seen, have to accept his word as absolute or we're not following at all. And all I'm asking at this point is for you to be honest with yourself. I have to be honest with myself. I'm not, I'm not asking you to become something that you're not. I'm asking you to be honest about who you are. Are you really following Jesus or not? Because that's at the point then your life can change. Because you're not just floating in a current one way, proclaiming something else. You absolutely know where you are. And then you can stop being mad at God for not coming through for you, for his promises not being real, for how your life is falling apart. And, and, and you can realize the reason my life is where it is and the reason God is absent in my life is because I've rejected his truth as I've been singing about his name or the reason I'm experiencing his power in spite of all the negative junk I'm going through is because I've accepted his truth and, and it's defining my life. But you have to be honest before you can get it. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm just asking for an honest assessment. And here are some important things I think I need to throw in so that, 
so that you can understand it's a rational idea to accept the Bible as God's word, that there are reasons that I went from not believing it to believing it. There are reasons that, that I trust in this that have nothing to do with checking my brain at the door. And the first thing I want you to know is that God revealed his truth in the Bible. That's, that's the statement of fact from Jesus. That's a statement of fact from the Bible. That's a statement of fact from anyone who's following the true Jesus, not the made-up Jesus. God revealed his truth in the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? And they gave him all kinds of answers that were wrong. And then Jesus says, so who do you guys say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the promised Savior. You know, the Son of the living God. You're the one that, that the scriptures told us was coming. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What's that saying? Truth is revealed by God. Absolute truth is revealed by God. And the same Peter wrote later to a community of Christians like us in his day. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was enabling them to communicate God's perfect and absolute truth, though they were imperfect human beings. God revealed his truth in the Bible. That's the declaration of the Christian faith. That's the declaration of those of us who follow Jesus. That's the declaration of Jesus himself. Of course, there are many who don't think it's reasonable to accept the Bible that we hold in our hands today as being God's word. But I need to say this, I need to say this out loud. They're wrong. It's the most reasonable and rational thing we can do when we really understand it. As a matter of fact, I want you to know the irrational thing, the blind leap of faith into the dark is to reject this as being God's revealed word. And I want to share with you some reasons, okay? For those of you who are of faith, you believe in Jesus and, and the Bible, I, I want to share this as an encouragement that we have nothing to be ashamed of when we hold up the Bible because it really does evidence himself in a rational, intellect, intellectual way as being the word of God. And for those of you who are skeptics and cynics as I was in weird stages of my life. I just want you to know that there are reasons, intellectual, rational reasons for you to embrace the Bible as God's word, to move in that direction. And I'll just share a couple of today, and I hope you'll take it further in your own studies, but one reason it's rational to accept God's truth revealed in the Bible is because of its origins. Its origins. I mean, where it comes from. And many of you don't know this, so I want to share it with you. Do you know the Bible was written over the course of close to 2,000 years? 2,000 years from beginning to end, the Bible. 2,000 years. Do you know how old America is, right? 200 and some. So the Bible took 10 times as many years to write as America's been around crazy. And it gets crazier. That's 50 generations plus. It was written by some 40 different authors who were all from very different times and very different cultures and very different ethnicities and very different educational and economic backgrounds. And yet, the whole Bible 
is in harmony with itself. It, it's consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. And I have to tell you, that's weird, because this doesn't happen with books authored solely by human hands. I always read books with, with a pen in hand, and, and I'm arguing with them all the time, and they're inconsistent in their thoughts and their arguments. It always happens with human things. And I, I have to tell you, even when a book has a single human author writing it in a single season of their life, it's difficult for them to be consistent and harmonious in their thoughts. I know this. I wrote a book, and parts of it suck. I mean, it's just weird. It's like, that was, that's a bad argument. That's, oh, what was I thinking? You know, I need to edit that thing. But I can't afford it because three people read the book. Why would I edit a book for those three people? So, but here's the deal. It's tough. And yet the Bible, written over the 2,000 years by all these different authors from different backgrounds, is consistent in thought. How could that be? Because the human beings over the course of 2,000 years weren't the author God was the author, and he is absolutely consistent. doesn't matter how many years and over how much time. It's reasonable to believe that God had to be involved in this. But it's not the only reason. I mean, there better be more, and there is. Another reason would be its endurance, how it's endured. Its endurance is a big deal. You might not know this, but the Bible has survived the attempts of kings and nations and other religions to obliterate it from the face of the earth. And... When they couldn't obliterate it from the face of the earth, then they went about trying to undermine it by, by giving it the harshest criticism of any book. And you've heard some of these things. Oh, it's not true. It's totally inconsistent with itself. It's this, this. It doesn't equal science. It doesn't do all, all this different stuff. None of which is factual. They don't even have a clue what they're talking about. They're just spouting the standards of their culture and their community. They're floating in the current of its culture. But, but in spite of the harshest of attacks, it remains the world's bestseller. How could that be? Well, it's because Jesus said it in Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Could it be that the reason men can't get rid of it and destroy it and remains the bestseller that pff, God's bigger than they are? Could it be? It could be. I think it gives us reason to think so, but there's more. One good reason that moved me to start considering the idea that it is God's revealed truth was its universality, its universal nature. And I have to tell you, it's, this, it's the single most translated and circulated book in the history of the world. It's been translated into 90% or more of the world's languages, and the other 10% want it desperately. And, and the question is, why? And the answer is because it addresses the universal needs of humanity. It answers the questions we're asking as humans. And when we really get into it, it starts speaking to our soul in a way that no human book can. And so you start going, whoa, this is bigger than self-help. This is different. Another reason to embrace the idea that this book is really God speaking to us is its relevance. I mean, if it's just human beings, it's only going to be relevant to people who can relate to those particular human beings from those backgrounds. But if it's God, it should be relevant to all of us regardless of our background. And the Bible speaks to who we are and to our greatest needs and longings regardless of our culture, our generation, or our century. Crazy. Another thing that really has to give me pause and say this really does seem like it has to come from God is, is the unity of this book. 
it's unity. And this is similar to the beginning point, but different. Because though written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by all these different authors from varying backgrounds, do you know the Bible has one central theme, just one theme, from beginning to end? It's, it's talking about, from beginning to end, man's need for God and God's provision for that need. It's talking about the sacrifice for sin that would be made by his son Jesus Christ in salvation. And when you read the Old Testament, it all points forward to Jesus. And the New Testament all points backward towards Jesus. And here's the deal. For all of eternity, we're going to be celebrating Jesus because he is the theme of not just the Bible. He is the theme of life and fullness. He is the one we need or will never know life. And that's what the Bible's about. It's got unbelievable unity. It's actually rational to believe that the Bible must come from the hands of, of God because, because of its honesty. I mean, it's an honest book. And I'm telling you, I, I've read a lot of human books and I've written a lot of things in my life. And, and I know the human tendency is to try and, I don't know, put a better face on our lives, right? Who tells the truth about themselves? And if you read most holy books, those... Those books don't tell the truth of the prophets and the, the people representing their view of God. But, but you read the Bible and oh my gosh, is it honest. It's too honest to have been written by humans without God's intervention. The Bible reveals the truth about the people in the Bible with blunt reality. I mean, it's crazy. Moses, the great man of God, ooh, he was a murderer. David, the man after God's own heart, he was a, ooh, an adulterer and a murderer. Are you kidding me? Paul was persecuted. It's telling the truth on these people. Why? Because, you see, God was the one telling the truth. But it goes further than this, and this is the one that really, really messes with me. It's reasonable to believe that the Bible is God's revealed truth when you understand its accuracy. It's accuracy. And this is something that no other holy book on the planet, so-called, has. And I could spend time talking about its prophetic accuracy. None of the other holy books do predictive kind of things because they knew that it would prove their stuff wrong because they can't predict the future. But the Bible is filled with predictive stuff. And do you realize every single prediction of the Bible that was supposed to be filled by today has been fulfilled with 100% accuracy? Man can't do that. But God can. We could talk about archaeological accuracy because many people who have absolutely disbelieved the Bible and went about to prove that it wasn't a part of history, its historical declarations were wrong, have pursued it through archaeology. And every single archaeological discovery that's been made has verified the Bible's accuracy and made those people look like the fools they are for rejecting it. Every single one, 100% accuracy. That's crazy, but... We're not going to talk about those things. We're, I want to talk about scientific accuracy because in our culture, the common word is that the Bible and faith can't stand up to science, that, that they don't go well with science, that science obliterates it. They're wrong because all of science ultimately and the scientific method of investigation emanated from the Bible and those who embraced it, not apart from it. It stands up to science because God is the creator of all things that are in science and it better stand up to it and it does. In spite of what you've been told by the people who don't know what they're talking about, 
The Bible stands up to science. In fact, I, I, I'm not even going to talk about this one. I'm going to let someone else talk about this. There's a guy named Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist. He's PhD'd up, you know, the wazoo. Whatever the wazoo is, you decide that. And, and he's taught at most of the premier institutions around the world, and I'm talking about secular institutions around the world. He is unbelievably studied, and he says he never met a Christian until he was 27 years old. But you know what brought him to faith in Jesus? Science. He said every other holy book in the world fell apart in view of science, but the Bible proved itself in such a way that it transformed my life. Here's what he said. Well, when I was 10 years of age, I read a book that described the great creation myths of the different cultures of the world. Every culture's got one, over 100 different creation stories. The best I found outside of the Bible was the Enuma Elisha, the Babylonians describing 14 events of creation, getting two right and 12 wrong. How did the others score? They all got zero. But the Enuma Elish got two out of 14 right. I got a theory for that. However, what we see in Genesis 1, once we recognize that the Hebrew word yom that's translated day, it's got four different literal definitions, and one of those literal definitions is an epoch of time. And the frame of reference is the surface of the earth for the six days, this is the score you get. Four for four on the initial conditions and 10 for 10 on the events of creation. It gets a perfect score. Moses not only described these 10 events of creation in a scientifically correct manner, he had them all in the correct chronological sequence. And I realized that would be impossible unless this Moses was inspired by the one that actually created everything. Now, that was the beginning of an 18-month test of the Bible. I studied the Bible for one or two hours a day uh, for an 18-month period. That's how long it took me to get a Revelation 22. At the end of those 18 months, I recognized I had not found a single provable error in the text or contradiction. And I'd found in that period of time over 200 places in the Bible where it accurately predicted scientific discoveries. And at age 19, I calculated the probability that all these Bible authors could have come up with these statements without being inspired by God. That probability is less than one chance in 10 to the 300th power. It happened to be the same week that my thermodynamics professor at the University of British Columbia gave us a problem assignment to calculate the probability that one of us physics students would be killed by a sudden reversal of the second law of thermodynamics. Now, if I had a few minutes, I could show you how you could calculate that for yourself. But let me just get to the bottom line. There's only one chance in 10 to the 80th of that happening. It's such a tiny possibility that we can confidently state it's never happened anytime, anywhere in the universe. But notice what I had just done. I had demonstrated to myself that this book is at least 10 to the 220 times more reliable than the second law of thermodynamics, and therefore be irrational for me not to put even greater confidence and trust in the message of this book. And that's what motivated me one August night, in fact it was on August 6, 107 in the morning, I signed my name in the back of this Gideon Bible giving my life to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> B 
based upon its scientific accuracy alone. The irrational blind leap of faith into the darkness is to reject the idea that the Bible is God's revealed truth. That's what's irrational, not the other. We have to stop allowing the standards and accepted values of our culture to sweep us along as if they're right, and we have to intentionally make a choice to choose a different standard. That's what Christ followers are supposed to do. And as an aside that has nothing to do with the talk, we just love the idea that Christianity can stand up to the test of human questions. And I'm actually putting together the idea of a series where we're going to deal with the tough topics of the world that people wrestle with rationally. And uh, we're pursuing Hugh Ross to get him here. We're hoping to have him here in June at Northridge for a God and Science kind of a day. And I'm excited about that. Hope you'll be a part of it. But there's one last reason that it's really reasonable to believe that, that the Bible is God's revealed absolute truth for us and that boils down to its impact. Its impact. I mean, it's the only thing that can explain the impact. Untold millions of people have experienced its power. People with addictions have found freedom through this book. Self-destructive, morally bankrupt people have been transformed by it. Hate has been turned to love by reading and applying the Bible. Marriages have been saved. Believers grow by studying it. The sorrowing are comforted. The Bible possesses a dynamic and transforming power that can't be explained in human terms. It makes sense that a higher power gave it to us. In fact, there are examples that I think really draw us to this point, people that have positively changed our world, like the Apostle Paul and Augustine and Martin Luther and Billy Graham and even Mother Teresa, claim that it was the Bible that introduced them to Jesus and transformed their lives. And the same is true for many of our lives in this auditorium, and including me. I'm going to tell you, there's only one explanation for what's happened in my life. And it's that though I've read many, many books that have been interesting but not life-changing, this one book has a power that is transformative, that comes from a different place. And it makes sense to me that it's God's Word, and it goes along with logic. But there's more, I think, that we need to know. If we're really going to understand and build our lives on it, we need to know that God's truth, that which he's revealed in the Bible, is objective, not subjective. It's not like, this is how I feel like I should live it, and this is how you feel like you should live it, and isn't it great that it lives in the abstract mystical and we can all live these different lives and all be following the Bible? It's not. It's not subjective. It's objective. Look at how the Bible itself says it. I mean, you either have to, and this isn't about circular reasoning. This is saying, if you're going to follow the Bible, you have to embrace the idea that it's not subjective. And most of us don't. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. It's given by God. It's revealed truth. And it's useful because if it's his absolute truth, it's useful for teaching, which is objective, and rebuking, which is objective, and correcting, which is objective, and training in the right way of living. This isn't about, this is how I'm going to apply it, how are you going to apply it, this is how you're going to live, I'm going to live, and we're all going to live different. No, we can correct each other. We can rebuke each other. We can train each other in the right way of living because it's objective. And this way, we can, if we're going to follow God, be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In fact, it's by his absolute truth we can figure out what's good work and what's bad work instead of just living and let live and living by toleration. 
You see, it's not based upon what's practical or preferable or traditional or pleasurable or convenient. It's based upon the facts that God has given to us about the world he created. God created, fact. Jesus is God's son, fact. The greatest command is to love God and to love others, fact. It's not to play games with its objective truth, not subjective. And it goes even further. God's truth is authoritative. It has authority. It's absolute. We talked about the teaching, rebuking thing in 2 Timothy, but look at how Jesus said it to nail it right down. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? <laughs> He's coming this. And this is Christianity today. Everybody's calling them Lord, Lord, but they're deciding what parts of the Bible to accept and what parts to reject and what they want to do and what they don't want to do and how they want to believe and how they don't want to believe and the morals they want to embrace and the ones that don't fit their life pattern. And he's up there going, why? Just don't call me Lord then. But if you call me Lord, then the truth I've revealed is, is authoritative in your life. You know what it means? It is not a matter of personal choice. It's not up for majority vote. It's not up for culture rules. God settles it when he says it. God says it. That settles it whether we believe it or not. And if we call him Lord, and I'm not saying you have to, you should. You'll never experience the life you're longing for if you don't. But if we do call him Lord, he expects obedience. God's truth is not a suggestion. It's an authority. God's truth is not a good idea. It's not an option. If we're going to follow Jesus, we embrace it. If we don't embrace it, we're not following Jesus. We either accept it and obey it or we don't. But when he speaks, it's authoritative. Are you living it? Maybe this, instead of your anger at God for what he's not doing, maybe this, your refusal to live by his authoritative word is the reason you're not experiencing God and his promises in your life. There's another thing I think we need to know, and that's the idea that God's truth is absolutely unchanging. And this is important. I, Jesus said it again in another passage, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but, but my words will never pass away. And here, here's what I want you to see. I hope you'll get it. I, I hope this makes driving in the snow and all that you did to get here worth it. And for all of you who did the hard work of turning on your computer and, you know, watching us online, I hope this really makes it worth it for you too. What was right and wrong before God 100 years ago has not changed. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been people who have used the Bible to manipulate their own belief systems. They've tried to use the Bible to declare things that weren't right. And people did this with slavery, of all things. Come on. It's ridiculous. But that which God has genuinely said was right and wrong has not changed over the course of time. Yes, our culture's views of right and wrong have changed. Yes, some religions' views of right and wrong have changed. Yes, our personal views of right and wrong may have changed, but not God's. God's truth is absolute and does not change with the times. And if we're going to experience its transforming power, we have to accept and conform to it regardless of our times. Because it's truth. Are you? Is it yours?
And so I think there's a, there's a so what to this. There's a, a place of application that, that this can make this whole idea relevant to us. And it's for wherever you're at in your spiritual spectrum, okay? And here's, here's the application. If we're going to live lives that matter in the end, if we're going to live well, if we're going to experience the life and fulfillment that Jesus promised us in this world, then we have to build our lives on the absolute truth of God's word. Not on what we want our truth to be, not on what we choose to value and to reject, but on the absolute truth of God's word. That's what we have to build our lives on. And just so you know, this isn't my idea. This is his idea. Look at how he says it in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice in their life is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house because life is tough for people of faith and people of no faith. And yet, those who heard and lived my word, they did not fall because they had their foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, you know, this revealed absolute truth of God, but does not live them, put them into practice, is like a fool who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house because life is hard, and in this case, it fell with a great crash. Too many of us are building our lives on the sand of culture's standards instead of intentionally choosing to build our lives on the foundation of God's absolute truth. And what's a shame is that we sing the songs of Jesus and we say the words of Jesus and we talk about the book of Jesus, we just don't embrace the truth of Jesus. But if we will, it'll change everything. And so here are some thoughts I have for you, and I hope you'll honor these last couple minutes because I think this is where the whole talk takes on its, its potential impact in our lives. If, if we're going to build our lives on, on God's truth, then we have to know it. We need to know his truth. You can't build your life on something you don't know. You can't stand on something you're not aware of. I mean, look at Psalm 119, verse 11. It says that I've, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might stand against sin, so that I might not sin against you. If, if we're going to stand against evil and the evil one, if we're going to stand against the wrong values and the wrong standards, if we're going to build our life on a foundation, then we have to know God's truth. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of this world, the only way in his humanity he could stand up to the torrents of the tumult of Satan in his life was because he knew God's word. Read Matthew 4. And you know why so many of us collapse in cave all the time? It's because we don't know it. We have to know it. Look at again what Joshua 1.8 says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Know it inside and out so that you can be careful to do everything written in it. You can't do it if you don't know it. And then he says, and when you know it and do it, you'll be prosperous and successful. And I don't want you to think in terms of Western civilization views of prosperity and success. He's not talking about you'll be rich and a celebrity. He's saying you will know the unbelievable fullness and prosperity of God in your soul and You'll be successful. You might not be known by anyone in this world, but you'll live the life God created for you for. That's where significance is truly achieved, and it comes because you know his word. Do you? 
I just want to encourage you here because not knowing God's truth is very dangerous because you will fall prey to whatever anyone claims to be God's truth and it'll destroy you. You can't make it your standard if you don't know it. And so here's my encouragement. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you work hard to get here because here you can be challenged with God's truth and, and maybe motivated to do something else, but don't make this the only place where you know it. You should be making opening the Bible a priority in your life on a daily basis because to know it is to have a standard that can change your world. Make this book a priority in your life. If we're going to really build our lives on it, then we need to not just know it, we need to believe it. I mean, we need to believe it. We have to entrust ourselves to it. Look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, who entrusts themselves to it. First for the Jew, then for the Gentiles, for all humans. For in the gospel, a, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, those who live their lives rightly before God will live by faith. We need to believe it. Trust it. Do you? First Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, just human instruments, you accepted it not as just a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. There comes a point in time when we have to make an intentional choice. I floated unintentionally in the standards of the culture and communities I was exposed to until one day I said, no more. I'm going to intentionally choose a new standard, God's truth, and I'm going to know it, live my life for it, mustache and three-piece tweed suit and all. And I am going to embrace that and trust myself to it because I believe that's where life change will happen and it is. How about you? I'm glad that you believe in Northridge for those of you who do, but believing in Northridge won't change your world, but believing in Jesus' truth will change everything about your world. I want to encourage you to know it and believe it. And just before I give you this last thought, which I think is worth hanging around for, I'm going to ask you to pray with me just for a minute. And for all of you, wherever you're engaging this talk, for those of you in Grosseal and Brighton and Celine, here in Plymouth, around the world, I hope that you'll be talking to God about where you're standing in relation to God's truth. Do you know it? Do you need to commit to knowing it more? Do you believe it, really? Are you trusting your life to it? But if you're here and you've never, ever trusted Jesus to forgive you and save you and give new life, why don't you make that what you do this moment? In, in my prayer right now, why don't you take my words and make them the expression of your heart to God quietly in your soul to God. Just say, God, I, I know that your truth says that I've sinned and fall short of your glory and I, I, I confess that's true. I believe it, it's true. Your, your word tells me that Jesus lived the perfect life I failed to live and then died for my sin so he could forgive me. I believe that's true. You rose again to give me new life, your word says. 
And in this moment, I'm trusting the truth of that. Giving you my sin, trusting you to forgive and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just before I give you this last thought, I, I want to share something that I've not said before and then something I say almost every week. The, the thing that I've not said before, and this is directed to all of you, but it's directed in particular to those of you who just prayed with me, that, that I don't know if you know this, but we have a Northridge app that goes on, you know, phones and tablets and that kind of thing. We have a Northridge app. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because one of the quickest ways that you can communicate with us is through this Northridge app. And the way you get it is if you have an iPhone, you go to the App Store. If you have an <coughs> Android, you go to Google Play. And, and you can just search Northridge app and put it on your phone. And it makes it so easy because seriously, in this amount of time that I'm talking to you, I'm doing it right now. I just pulled up the Northridge app, hit connect. It goes to I made a spiritual decision. I hit that. And all you have to do is right on here say, I prayed to receive Jesus. Or I've renewed my commitment to Jesus. Communicate it to us. And we'll send you a Bible and we'll send you information about next steps you can take. And there are all kinds of ways you can interact with us on this app. Those of you watching online can interact with us on that. If you don't have a phone or aren't into that whole app thing, then, then we, do have, um, we do have a method that was used in Jesus' day. Um, <laughs> not really, but it's a printed thing and there's a connection card in here and you can fill that out and do the same thing. But there are boxes at the exits. Throw it in there. It's at all of our campuses. And what we'll do is we'll send you a Bible and next steps thing. Please let us know that you prayed with us, that you're taking steps. And if you're watching online, you can hit the what next steps thing right there on your computer or tablet and we'll engage you. Uh, two other things that I want to share with you and then I'm going to finish the talk. The, this series, I believe, is one of the most significant series that I've done in a very, very long time as it relates to our faith issues. And because of that, I'm doing something I've never done before. Every Wednesday at 12.15... I'm doing Facebook Live to answer questions and to go deeper and to, to go further with these ideas to help people to navigate through them. And a lot of people are engaging. A lot of people aren't yet. I hope that you will. To be a part of it, all you have to do is just search me out on Facebook, Pastor Brad Powell, and like it or follow it so that the live feed will come right to your thing at 12.15. And you might say, well, I'm at work. I can't watch it. Okay, I get that. But once we do it, it's on there, and you can still go to it and interact with it and ask questions that we can engage with. And, and I hope that you'll, at 12.15 on Wednesday, be a part of that, okay? And this week, before Wednesday, I'm going to send out a post where I'm going to start inviting you to ask questions from this talk early so that the whole thing, I can just be investing myself in questions you have about the Bible and how to apply it to your life and what it means in your life. And obviously won't be able to answer every question, but I'll try to do my best to answer most, okay? And last but not least, if you're struggling with any of these issues or you'd like to talk to someone, we have a prayer team that meets in all of our environments. After the service, they're down front. Just come and talk to them. They'd love to talk to you, answer questions, pray with you. Hope that you'll take advantage of that. Here's how I want to end the talk. If we're going to build our lives on God's word, we have to know it, and we have to believe it. But there's one last step we have to take. Look at James chapter 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent in our natural lives, and, and instead, make a choice to humbly accept the revealed truth, the word planted in you, which can just transform you. And don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves that something's happening in your life, but do what it says. 
We have to know it. We have to believe it. And we have to live it if we're really, really going to build our lives on it. We have to live it. In fact, here's what I want you to know. In the end, we only experience the power of faith in God's truth when we live it, when we apply it to our lives. So here's the big question. Are you? Every one of us is living by and for a standard that determines whether we live well or poorly, whether we live wisely or foolishly, whether we live lives that matter forever or just for the moment. In my life, as I told you in my story, when I've not intentionally chosen God's truth as my standard, I unintentionally adopted the standards of this world. And it always led to messed up choices and it's always led me to disappointment and regret, which I still carry to this day many times. But when I chose God's standard, my life was positively transformed. My failures were no longer final. So here's the question for you, and this is very personal. Have you, in, have you unintentionally adopted the standard of the seen world? Or have you intentionally chosen the standard of God's unseen but very real kingdom? Are you living according to God's truth or not? This week, let's make God's word our standard. This week, let's be intentional about it. This week, let's live well because that's when God becomes real because God becomes real through his truth as we know it, believe it, and live it. And can you imagine our world if we do this? So this week, I hope as I pray for you, you'll pray for me, and I hope that you'll be inviting others in because could you imagine how much the people in our world need this kind of truth? You can make it happen by inviting them. I'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.